So we come now to uh, get into our Bibles together, uh, which we believe to be uh, the very word of that glorious God. And today we come in our journey through the book of Hebrews uh, to chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. And this is a very serious passage. Uh, in fact, it, it, it's one of the most serious passages, not only in the book of Hebrews, but in all of the Bible. It's a warning passage. It's not the only one we have in Hebrews. There's actually several, but this may well be considered uh, you know, the most serious. And passages like this raise a very important question for those of us who have come to the place of putting our trust in Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, maybe you're tuned in today and you haven't yet come to that place of putting your faith in Jesus, and I'm, I'm really glad you're checking it out. And that would be my prayer for you, that you would come to that place. But for those of us who've done that, um, the Bible clearly teaches that when we put our faith in Jesus, God brings about some amazing changes in our lives. He, he changes our identity, and he does that not because of anything we do or anything we accomplish, but solely because of what his son Jesus has accomplished for us. Um, we're told that we are no longer separated from God uh, by our sin, but because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we actually become God's children, this intimate relationship now that we have with him, and we become citizens of his kingdom. Uh, we're forgiven of all of our sins, all of them. Uh, we become indwelt by the very Spirit of God, and all of God's promises become true for us personally. And we're told to live with confidence, a confidence that God is not against us, but he is for us, and absolutely nothing can separate us from his loving purposes for our lives. Okay, well, if that's true, and, and there's more, if that's true, then why in the world do we need warnings? Uh, why, why are they there? What, what purpose do they serve? What are, what are they there for? Well, that's... That's the question we need to wrestle with today uh, as we look at this, because these verses are here to help us live the way Jesus wants us to. So let's look now, Hebrews chapter 6, and I'll pick it up at verse 4, read down through verse 12. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. 
But even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. But we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy or indifferent, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. Well, you can see how serious it is, uh, these words, if they, if they fall away, it is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. Those those are disturbing words. And what makes them so disturbing is they are describing people who have had personal experiences with God. Look how they're described. It says, first of all, that they've been enlightened. Well, light is a common biblical picture of truth. And so to be enlightened is to come in contact with the truth, to be exposed to the message of who God is and what he's done. And we're told in the first chapter of Hebrews that God has spoken, and he has spoken his ultimate message to us in the person of his son, Jesus. And so those who have heard that word have been enlightened. It says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So there's that experience. And then we have the word taste in verses 4 and 5. And that also speaks of personal experience. Back in chapter 2, we were told that Jesus suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone well that means he experienced death so we wouldn't have to and here it's talking about people who've experienced who've tasted three things they've experienced the heavenly gift jesus they've experienced the goodness of god's word and they've experienced the powers of the coming age and then there's one more expression of experience sharing in the Holy Spirit. That is in some way uh, encountering, experiencing the manifestation of the Spirit's power and goodness. So you put it all together, and it says these are people who've been enlightened by God's truth, they've tasted His heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted His good word, and they've tasted the powers of the coming age. Doesn't that sound impressive? I mean, it sounds genuine. It sounds life-changing. And that's why it's so shocking to read those words if they fall away. And you think, what? How, How could someone have those experiences and then fall away from Christ? How are we to make sense of that? Well, let's first be clear about what it doesn't mean. This is not talking about somebody stumbling into some sin and then 
not being able to be forgiven because it's a really bad sin. Uh, you know, someone's walking along in, in their, their journey with Christ, and then some temptation overcomes them, and because it's a really bad sin, there's no way for them to repent and be right with God. Now, it's possible you could get that impression because that expression, fall away, sounds like an accident. You know, we didn't mean to. You know, you don't fall down on purpose. But see, that's not the idea here. And we know that because the Bible's clear that all believers sin at times. It's not good when we do, and we shouldn't excuse it and, and say it's not a big deal. But the point is, when believers sin, Jesus forgives our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, all of it. So every genuine believer Part of that experience is the ongoing confession of sin and, and experiencing Jesus' forgiveness. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And we come to the Father in his righteousness, not our own. I mean, think about it. The Apostle Peter, okay? So in many ways, the leader of the 12 apostles that Jesus chose, he denied Christ. He said he didn't know him when, the, when pressure came. You know, that's pretty awful. And yet Jesus forgave him and restored him. What this is talking about is a complete renouncing of Jesus. This is someone who once professed allegiance to Christ, now turning their back on him and walking away from him for good. Can that really happen? Can someone who personally experiences the goodness of Jesus, as described here, can someone who experiences the goodness of Christ actually end up rejecting him? And the answer is yes. We know it can happen, not only because there's a warning about it here, but because the Bible tells us about people who did it. And Probably the most obvious example is that of Judas, Judas Iscariot. He was one of the 12 chosen by Jesus. And you know, think about it. He knew Jesus up close. Okay, These guys were with Jesus pretty much 24-7 for like three years. He saw the miracles. He heard the truth from Jesus' own lips. He felt the presence of the Holy Spirit empowering Christ. Um, he, sh he tasted the heavenly gift and the good word and the powers of the coming age. He was there. I mean, when the Son of God showed up, Judas had a front row seat. And yet when all was said and done, Judas decided he'd rather have 30 silver coins than a relationship with Jesus, the Son of God. And he sold him out. 
Judas experienced Christ personally and then rejected him. And there's other examples. There's a guy named Demas. Uh, we read about him in the letters of Paul. He was, he was a close associate of Paul's. Uh, Paul speaks of him, and Demas worked alongside Paul, so he experienced Christian partnership. He, he saw miracles because Paul did them. God did them through Paul and others. He heard the truth of the gospel proclaimed, and he saw it lived out by one of the greatest Christians who's ever lived. But in Paul's final letter, he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. So Demas experienced Christ personally, and then he walked away. And the reason given for him walking away is that he, he loved the world. That is, he valued what the world could give him more than what Jesus would give him. So this raises a huge question. Do these examples and do these words here in Hebrews 6, do the, does this mean that it's possible for a genuine believer in Christ, okay, someone who, using the language of the Bible, has been born again of God's Spirit, someone who's been justified by faith in Jesus, that is, made right with God through faith in Christ, someone who's been adopted into God's family, someone who has been made alive together with Christ, someone who has been saved by God's grace through faith, is this saying that people like that can forfeit their salvation and end up eternally separated from God? I hope you don't hear that as a merely academic question, something that only theologians and scholars should care about. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, you should care about this. Should you be afraid of this happening to you? Or to ask it very differently, can you actually be confident that you are forgiven forever? that you are part of God's family forever, that you are included in Christ's kingdom forever, and you are looking forward to joy in His presence forever? Can you have that confidence? Or can you lose all that? I feel a certain reluctance to answer the question. And it's not because I'm unsure of the answer. I feel pretty confident in the answer. I think the Bible is clear on this. I don't think it's ambiguous. Um, what I'm reluctant to do is to give anyone a false confidence. Because I think the reason this passage is in the Bible is to shake people up who have a confidence they shouldn't have because it isn't based on truth. I'm afraid as soon as I say, no, no, I don't believe the experiences that Judas and Demas and anyone else who decisively walks away from Christ, 
I don't think their experiences constitute genuine salvation. I'm afraid that as soon as I say that, there's going to be somebody listening who says, oh, good, because I know I'm saved, so I don't have to, I don't have to think about this. I don't have to deal with it. Can I just say that's not the right way to respond to a serious warning? Think about this. Think about if you were taking a road trip, and so you're driving along, and, and you know that up ahead you're going to be crossing a very high canyon. And when you get close, you see that there's emergency vehicles pulled off the side of the road with their lights flashing, and they're putting up a sign that says, Road Closed bridge out, use Highway 6 instead. But you, you checked out Google Maps, and Google Maps said that this route was the route to take because Highway 6 is going way around, and, and this is the best way to go. Let me ask you, would you keep driving full speed ahead, confident that Google knows all? Or do you think you might want to stop and check things out and make sure your confidence is justified? See, the whole point of this passage, the whole point of this passage is that there are people who have heard the truth, who've been enlightened, who've been influenced by the Holy Spirit, who've had wonderful experiences who right now may think they're just fine with God, they're okay with God because of those experiences, but who one day will turn their backs on Jesus and never return. And the right response to that warning is not for me to just assume I'm fine because of my past experiences and say, well, that could never happen to me because this happened and this happened and this happened. The, the right response is to stop and see if my confidence is actually based on the truth. So, without minimizing this warning in any way or minimizing the importance of us thinking about it and, and, and uh, applying it to ourselves... Let me say no, I don't believe that what these people experienced was genuine salvation. And I want to show you some reasons why I think that from this very same book, the book of Hebrews. Now, there are a lot of other scriptures we could look at, but I want you to see that the same writer who warns us so seriously not to just assume that we're saved, this same writer makes it clear that true salvation is a work of God that cannot be undone by us. So here we go. First reason, um, the, the illustration in verses 7 and 8. It's about two fields. One field is fruitful and blessed. And the other one is barren and choked with weeds and is in danger of being cursed and the thing to notice is the bad field isn't a field that used to produce fruit and now no longer does. This is a field that never produced fruit in spite of all of the rain it received. So the parallel would be someone who has received many blessings from God. 
you know, hearing the truth of his word, seeing displays of his power, uh, experiencing manifestations of his spirit, but this person has never actually produced any real fruit for God. Second reason, verse 9. After giving this severe warning about people who fall away, the writer says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. So look what he's doing. He's making a contrast between things that characterize those who fall away and the things that go along with genuine salvation which means that those experiences described in verses 4 and 5, those in and of themselves don't constitute proof that you're saved. There's more to it. And the writer is confident that his readers do have genuine salvation, and because they do, they will persist in their faith and they will not fall away. And the question is, why is he confident? Well, because they've been fruitful in the past. He's seen it which is why their current situation is such a problem. Because now they're apparently wondering if they should continue to follow Jesus because some people are giving them heat saying, hey, could you just knock off the Jesus thing? Could you just go back to the way you were? And, you know, we were all fine then. And the author's saying, no, it is by continuing to hold fast to Jesus that you prove your salvation is genuine. Which brings us to the next reason. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 14, it says this, We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Sounds a lot like what he's saying here. But notice the grammar here because it is important. It does not say we will come to share in Christ if we hold firmly uh, to the end, the confidence we had at first. It says, we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end. In other words, continuing to trust Jesus to the end does not qualify you or earn you a share in Christ. It doesn't qualify you for salvation. It proves you already have it which means on the flip side that you don't lose your salvation by falling away. Falling away shows you didn't really have it. One more. There are others we could look at, but we'll just look at one more. In chapter 10, verse 14, it says that by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So notice what it's saying. Jesus has done something. There's something that happened, and now there's something that's happening. And what happened is Jesus made perfect forever those who now are being made holy. So the being made holy now, that is, if you're currently growing in spiritual maturity, if you're confessing your sins, if you're, if you're not apathetic to Jesus, but you're striving to know him better and better, and uh, you want to make him known, and you want to be led by his Spirit, then this verse says that Jesus has already made you perfect forever. Not in experience, but in position. He's, 
He's given his righteousness to you and he's qualified you and he's made you a child of God and you are in that position of being made perfect forever. And the, the evidence of that is you are experientially growing in your relationship with Christ, growing spiritually now. So, those are evidences that salvation is a work of God that cannot be forfeited. Now, if that's true, then why is this warning here? If, if salvation, if true salvation cannot be lost, what is the point of warning us about falling away? Well, it's not to make us afraid that we might lose salvation it's calling us to make sure we really have it. Because it's possible to believe you are saved and secure for the wrong reason. Over the years, I've known people who have professed to be Christian because of an experience they had years ago but they're currently showing absolutely no evidence of actually knowing Christ. They, they ignore what he has said. They, they're not obedient to his instructions. They're not connected to a church family. They're not, uh, they're not accountable to spiritual leaders they show no real desire for worship. They're not interested in spreading the good news to their neighbors, their community, and to the world in fulfillment of Christ's mission that he's given us. It seems that all they've got is a memory of an experience. And there's no evidence of the Spirit working in their lives today. And what this is teaching us is this. Don't trust in an experience from the past trust in Christ today make sure you're trusting him today why does it say it's impossible for someone who falls away like this to be brought back to repentance does this mean that God would actually repent or accept somebody who repents Someone who says, God, I'm sorry, I, it was wrong, it was terrible, uh, forgive me. Is God going to say, no, sorry, nope, you've done that too many times. No, no, that was a bad one, I, I'm not forgiving that one. Is that what it's saying? No. What it means is that those who experience Christ and his goodness and then reject him in this way will never truly repent. They won't. See, it's one thing for an outsider to reject Christ. You know, someone who's just kind of heard, but maybe never really heard or never really paid attention or, or whatever, for them to say, man, nah, Christian, nah, yeah, I don't want to do that. But it's very different for someone who has been in a community of genuine believers in Christ, someone who's been enlightened by the Word of God, someone who has tasted of the heavenly gift and shared in the experience of the Holy Spirit, for someone who has actually experienced the goodness of Jesus to say, no, I don't want Him. I want money, or, or I want possessions, or I want immoral pleasures, I don't want him. 
How could they possibly repent? They've made up their mind. They've made up their mind about what they love the most, and it isn't Jesus. Now, we all fail to love Jesus perfectly. I mean, every time we, we sin, we're at that moment saying, well, what I really love right now is this. Um, but what is the response of genuine faith to that? It's to say, that's terrible. Lord, I'm sorry. I, I just, that was wrong of me. Help me to love you above anything else. But this person who falls away says, no, no, I'm fine with loving other things more than Jesus. There's no repenting from that. And I know as soon as I say that, as soon as I say that, we all are thinking of someone and thinking, well, what about them? What about my dad? What about my mom? What about my son or daughter? What about my friend who used to go to church and now doesn't go? They don't read their Bible and they don't just seem interested at all in following Christ. What about them? I don't know. And I don't know because it's not my place and it's not your place to determine if someone is beyond repentance or not. That's God's job. That's not ours. Our job is to listen to Jesus and, re and respond in faith, the faith that leads to obedience. And part of that obedience is praying fervently for those who seem indifferent to Christ and speaking the truth in love. God hasn't given us this warning so we will evaluate others and figure out who's beyond repentance, who's beyond hope, and then give up on them. Not at all. God has given us this warning for us to personalize to ourselves, our own lives, and, and have a healthy fear of unbelief. Not a paralyzing fear, okay? Not a fear that robs us of the kind of confidence God wants us to have in his promises, in his work. Now, this is a fear that motivates us to examine ourselves to make sure our faith is real. How do I do that? I say, am I trusting Christ today? Am I trusting Christ right now? Am I relying on his word now? Am I relying on his spirit now? Am I pursuing his agenda Am I believing his promises? Am I looking forward to his return? Do I want to know him better? Do I want to make him known to others? Do I want that today? Because past experiences are just that. Past experiences. By themselves, they're not proof. Do I trust Christ today? Or... If the flame in my heart has grown cold, and, th and that happens, what do I do? Do I cry out to God and say, God, I just, I don't feel it. I don't feel the love for you I need to feel. I don't feel the desire to obey that I need to feel. You know, do I pour spiritual gasoline on the fire, so to speak? You know, look at his promises again and again and pray and say, God, help me. Fan, fan the fire into fire flame again and I, I reach out to God's people 
because he tells me to and to share my burdens with them and ask them to pray for me? Or am I just okay with not really caring about Christ? That's what we have to examine. And that's why the warning is here. It's to wake us up to the danger of fake faith. How often we've gone to church, how many Bible camps we went to, uh, whether we went forward, whether we prayed a certain prayer. Okay, those things are all good, but in and of themselves, the evidence, those aren't sufficient to show that my relationship with Christ is real, that my salvation is genuine. I need to look at what is God doing. It, It says in Scripture, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And then if you are, you're confident. And if you're not, you say, Lord, save me. Shortest prayer in the Bible. Lord, save me. So I'm going to pray. I encourage you to pray with me. It's serious stuff. And it's really easy to just kind of read this and sort of blow it off and say, eh, you know, I think I'm fine. God would have you make sure. Let's pray. Father, pray for each one of us that you today in your grace have given this warning to. Lord, you love us, and that's why you tell us hard things. And I pray for any one of us who needs to just wake up, who needs by your Spirit to have a genuine connection with you. And if there's anyone watching who hasn't yet taken that step of saying, Lord, I can't be good enough. I can't save myself. I can't make myself right with you. Only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus went to the cross and took my sin. Only Jesus rose from the dead. And so I want my faith to be in Christ alone. I want to have the salvation that He will give me, the righteousness that He gives as a free gift. Lord Jesus, make this true for me. And Lord, if our, if our hearts are cold today, will You fan them into flame? And if we know someone who needs us to pray for them, will we help us do that and help us not quit? Help us not assume it's up to us to make the decision, but to leave it in Your hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.